Welcome to the 12th episode of Rogue Librarians, a podcast in which three librarians discuss banned books. We are your hosts, Marion, Dorothy, Alana, and we, we are, are the Rogue, Rogue librarians. librarians. We would love for you to participate in our discussion. Please visit theroguelibrarians.com or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Rogue Librarians Pod or on Twitter at our librarians. We always love for you, our listeners, to, to participate in our discussion. Please visit theroguelibrarians.com or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Rogue Librarians Pod. As we mentioned last time, we really appreciate all of your support so far. You can continue to support us in several different ways. First, please spread the word to others. Second, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Third, please give us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. We really love it when you do that. It makes us smile um, and we know you're out there listening. And finally, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rogue librarians. If you spend at least $5 a month, you receive great perks, including bonus audio content, a private community, shout outs in our episodes, and personalized book recommendations. Your contributions help us to pay our wonderful audio editor, Lizzie. Hey, Lizzie. And cover, Hello, Lizzie. And cover other costs associated with the podcast. Many thanks for all of your help. So we always start each segment with a book that we have recently read, and I'm going to go to Alana today first. Okay, great. Uh, I just decided to reread one of my favorite books from the last few years, which is Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas. Mm. On my list. Yes, I'm listening to it again. I highly recommend the narrator. It is a great paranormal romance story that features a trans teen who uh, has the ability to see ghosts and he is trying to figure out how um, this teenage boy was murdered to send him to the afterlife Um, but he's also attracted to him so it's really interesting um, and I love the story. How about you, Dorothy? I am. Uh, I picked up at a library book sale, my favorite place to get books, um, Margaret Atwood's book of poetry, Morning in the Burned House. And, you know, haven't read Atwood, any Atwood in a while. Um, so it's just a pleasure to read her language. It's dark, um, but uh, well, I think I'll just, I'll just tell you about my favorite poem because... Uh, this will give you a flavor. Uh, there's a lot of little historical settings and characters. Um, this one is called Half Hanged Mary, which was um, about a woman who was accused of witchcraft in the 1680s in a Puritan town in Massachusetts and hanged from a tree where, according to one of the several surviving accounts, she was left all night. It is known that when she was cut down, she was still alive, since so she lived for another 14 years. So uh, it's oh it's it's good. It's, she her she's so good with the uh, with words. My Margaret Atwood lover. Uh, what do, what do you got on the on the pile, Marion? Um. All right. So a book that I have been that I have read recently. Um, I was just browsing around in the YA section of a library when I picked up All Boys Aren't Blue. And I happened upon a nonfiction book called Queerfully and Wonderfully Made, A Guide for LGBTQ Plus Christian Teens, which is edited by Lee Fink. Um, And I picked the book up purely out of curiosity because I kind of wanted to know what take this book would have. Mm. Um, And I was prepared to um, be wary of it. And... I was pleasantly surprised. I thought the book was very well done. Um, it was very open and accepting. And the overall message in the book was acceptance and love for, um, 
for whomever you are, however you present gender-wise or sexuality-wise, it was it was just a shock to me, honestly. Um, but I, I, and I hate to say it that way, but um, we hear so much about um, some some Christian groups who are, you know, who are very very negative about LGBTQ plus. And the gist of this book was if you are a member of a church that um, makes you feel self-loathing, then you're in the wrong church. There are Christian churches out there that are very accepting and loving and um, encouraging of um, LGBTQ plus folks to be who they are and to be out about who they are and to be seen as who they are. And this was, um, you know, that, that was the overall message for me, but it, it really is a guidebook on, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of questions that, um, young folks might have, um, deciding to come out, how to come out, how to love themselves, um, dealing with mixed messages that they're getting from church doctrines and things like that. So I, I thought it was a really, um, a nice, a nice tool, um, for, for folks who need it. Um, and, and honestly, it, anybody could read it. And, you know, if you're questioning as a Christian, you know, whether your child is going to go to hell because they are not, you know, because they're somewhere on the gender spectrum, I think that this book will also help, um, a parent to realize that, you know, God, God made us perfectly. And, um, in, in God's image and, and we are all loved as we are. So I'll just leave that there. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Sounds like it could end up on our list at some point. Hmm. Hmm. Well, today we are continuing our discussion of all boys aren't blue, a memoir manifesto by George M. Johnson, which was the third most challenged book in 2021. First published in 2020, this memoir has received multiple starred reviews and was adapted as a short film in 2021. This book is recommended for those who are 14 and older by the School Library Journal and 16 and older by Common Sense Media. As we mentioned last time, George Matthew Johnson is Black and non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. And as we've said before, we are three white cisgender and straight women. So we've not had the same experiences as Johnson, but uh, we will do our best to talk about them. And we wanted to mention that some of our discussion will focus on sexual assault. As we said last time, this book has been banned because of its LGBTQ plus content, profanity, and because it is considered to be sexually explicit. So, Dorothy, do you want to remind us what this book is about? Absolutely. So, um, uh, George describes it as a YA memoir and a manifesto about growing up Black and queer, uh, and uh, states very clearly in the foreword, this book will touch on sexual assault, loss of virginity, homophobia, racism, and anti-Blackness, and has also a very thoughtful discussion of um, the N-word and the F-word, the one that refers to queerness, and suggests how to thoughtfully use them in a discussion, uh, which I thought was a nice um, addition. Uh, It's written in four acts, and uh, each act has sort of a series, it felt to me like a series of essays, stories. I say essay because usually comes around to like, here's the meaning that I want you to get, you know, uh, very direct in that way. That's the manifesto part of it. So we have a, a part act one, a different kid where we get stories, anecdotes and advice from childhood through high school. Uh, and uh, act two, which is uh, called family where it's written as letters to different members of the family Act three, which is teenagers, which uh, takes us again back to some of the teenage years, but specifically seems to be about exploring the gayness and their own responses to it. Um, 
And then finally, Act 4, which is Friends, which really goes more into the college experience and coming of age and more uh, um, choices made around sex and and agency. uh, That's a quick summary. Great. Thank you. So our first section then, characterization. Alana, would you like to start us off on that? Sure. So we're talking about characterization. And as Dorothy just said, this is a memoir. It's a true story. And uh, one of the things that I think you understand as you read this book is that George or Matthew, as they're called at different points, Um, has very close relationships with certain people. And um, the relationship that I found most special was the one he had with his grandmother, his mother's mom, Nanny. And um, you can tell from the very beginning of the book how close they were to Nanny. And um, there's a a whole section that they write to Nanny. And um, one piece of it that I found to be especially moving was um, Johnson said, because she saw me, I get the chance to tell everyone about her. And uh, even many years before he came, or sorry, before they came out to her as gay, and that wasn't till they were 25, Nanny picked up on the fact that they were different in some way and told all of her grandchildren, you know, I I love each of you differently because you are different people. And uh, Johnson said that they were very um, lonely and isolated when they were younger, partially because they were in the closet and they couldn't or thought they couldn't be who they truly were. And um, Nanny stepped in to be their best friend and conspirator, and they would um, do various uh, ways of selling money, or sorry, selling things to get money, like selling candy um, and making a lot of money that way. And uh, when he needed service hours, she created a whole service project for him at their, sorry, she created a whole service project for them at their church. A whole soup kitchen, A whole soup kitchen. And uh, she really went out of her way to help him in every way she could. And she loved him. Oh, my gosh. And she loved them (laughs) no matter what. And even when uh, Johnson's cousin, Hope, um, came out as trans and told the family, my chosen name is Hope, uh, Nanny was up front with the fact that, well, you know, I knew you from this, uh, from the time you were born as this person, but, you know, I'll try. Um, so <laughs> I, I just, I, I just love Nanny. I love that, uh, that George brought that into it because it is so much what an old person's response to like, what, you know, <laughs> what do you mean you're changing things on me? Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that it was, that it was done with love and that it didn't change, you know, how they thought of her. Mm-hmm. And also with Nanny in particular, but with all of the family, uh, it really highlighted for me some of the differences in the ways black communities uh, view family and take care of each other. And I, you know, honestly, a little jealous you know, having that whole extended family, having Nanny there to take care of all the different um, kids whenever it was needed. Right. It was lovely. Yeah, you, Nanny You get was, the sense that she... Sorry, go ahead, Mary. Oh, I was just going to say, Nanny was the matriarch. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't say that lightly. Nanny was the matriarch, the queen of the family. And until she died, no one else was going to take that role. And she was so pivotal, not just because she was this awesome, wonderful person who saw George as they were 
and and all of the grandchildren and cousins and whatnot. But Nanny was very pivotal in raising them all because George had a mom and dad that both worked long hours and, you know, were very serious about providing their for their families and, you know, very much a part of their children's lives. But Nanny's the glue that held it all together so that mom and dad could have these careers and and really, mm-hmm. um, you know, make the money that provided for the whole family. So that was a really cool, special, um, special relationship. But I but I also I mean, again, you know, I'm I'm white, so I am I'm trying to learn from what I've read in this book. But it seems like. Um, this is kind of, you know, part of the black culture is that there is a matriarch of the family and the matriarch is the glue. Well, in addition to Nanny, you can tell that George is very close to other members of their family. And there's a very sweet, very touching letter that they wrote to their younger brother, Garrett. Um, But I think you have uh, a clear sense of how their relationships with their mom and dad also affected who they became. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. sorry. This, uh, this is our first episode, incidentally, not face-to-face. So a lot of these overlaps <laughs> and uh, are, are a result of us all having something to say and not knowing when the next we don't sentence have those is coming up. Cues. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, well, we talked uh, before we started recording about how there's so many people in here that we couldn't possibly go into the characterization of each one. Uh, you mentioned the parents, and I really had something to say about the relationship with dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's in in the um, the section with letters to the different people. I think that's the section it's in. Hang on. I'm checking. Daddy's Second Chance is the name of the chapter. Um, talks about how, and I'm going to quote this. Um, I watch black men criticize black queer boys every day. And that's not to say my community is more homophobic than others or that I don't see where black straight men affirm me. But by and large, it's not enough. My father taught me that as much as I feel that straight black men are often my oppressors, there are moments that I also know they can be my protectors. That the social conditioning that told us to hate our own because of sex and gender can be broken. And it was so interesting with their father because their father had had a child from a previous marriage or a previous mother um, that was gay and the father had not, uh, my impression was not, not handled that well, that relationship well, but it maybe had predisposed him and with the influence of his mother, who's also amazing, um, their mother, who's also amazing, uh, really to be a little bit more open to loving this child, even though they weren't conforming to this fairly rigid uh, black masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this whole section about the football game or the foot, to tossing the football around where the dad was surprised that uh, Matthew uh, slash George, you know, was good with the football. And I just had so many mixed emotions around that. You know, I'm like uh, underlining uh, toxic masculinity, you know, <laughs> Uh, why should throwing a football make any difference uh, to how you love your children? But that day changed our relationship forever. That's the quote in the book. So it, it's sad that there had to be some traditionally masculine activity. But at the same time, you know, it highlights how nobody fits into a box. And, and, and it was a wonderful bridge for the two of them to have together. So it was just, it was a a moving chapter for me. I I agree. And I think that also that brings up the whole um, question that I think as parents, 
anyone who's a parent has grappled with, which is, you know, we brought a child into the world. And whenever we bring a child into the world, there are all these hopes and dreams that are born with that child. And, you know, anymore in our society, from the time that there's a gender reveal, which is its own (laughs) bag of worms to open up. Ridiculousness that comes with that. Huge in our society. And I don't see it as a positive, honestly. I see it as um, a societal response to any other alternative than male or female. And, you know, and, and so I find that problematic, but that's a whole nother discussion. But from the gender reveal, you know, just, just going back to parents and parental feelings and certainly the hormones that go through a mother's body when she's pregnant and beyond, um, there, you know, there are hopes and expectations that, I mean, you can't help but have, right? That's just natural, a natural part of being pregnant and giving birth. And yet we as parents have to come to terms with the fact that we are bringing a life into the world. We don't really control that life. Um, We sustain that life. We nurture that life. We educate that life. But whomever that person becomes is ultimately up to that free soul that we've brought into the world as a new life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think that all parents look at it that way. Um, And I think that society has reinforced these notions of, you know, if you don't like what you see in your kid, look in the mirror. Well, not that I disagree with that, but, you know, that it's all the parents' responsibility all the time. Um without accepting the free will of the, the new life. And, you know, so sort of tagging on to what you said, Dorothy, I mean, if we as parents are raising our children, um, being exposed to the things that we like, because that's natural, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. exposed my children to music. I exposed my children to mm-hmm. basketball. I've exposed my children to cycling and hiking and being in nature and you know the list could go on and on and on um Mm -hmm. and that's a part of who who i am that i have shared with them but inevitably there comes a time when you realize that your children may or may not love the things that you do as much as you do and yes yes i'm so feeling but I think that. that parents really struggle with that, you know, in, in the passage that you referred to, Dorothy, you know, that was a way for dad to connect with George mm-hmm. was through the tossing of the football. And, and it was something that George themselves uh, identified as, you know, a strength mm-hmm. of their it, own. And it reinforced, so, I think, for dad that, okay, I have a connection with with my son, my child. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, which has always been there. There's always been a connection. Every parent has a connection to their their children, whether they nurture it or not. But we as selfish individuals, because we all are, we're human, want our children to reflect us. So, So there's a coming to terms of, I have to accept that my child is not going to be just exactly like me. My child is not put on the earth to fulfill my hopes and dreams. The child is brought to the earth to live their own life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought it was it was great to bring it back around to dad that uh, that we got to hear how that exploration kind of worked for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm totally with you. What I realized when I had my second child From the get-go, they're so different from the first child. Uh, And that was where you run into this danger of wanting to have a bunch of kids because you're like, oh, what would the next one be? They're all so different. Mm -hmm. So even just from a very, very young age, kids make it very clear that they are who they are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have a role to play, but there's some inherent stuff that you you can't change and shouldn't try 
For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, um, Marion, have a particular character that spoke to you? Um, well, I loved I loved the relationship that George <clears throat> had with Mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was such a sweet a sweet um, relationship, and mm-hmm. you know, Mom was strong. Mom was no pushover. Mom was. My, she's, I say was as though she doesn't exist anymore, but she does as far as I know. <clears throat> but the way that she's portrayed in the book, I, um, I loved the scene when George is trying to decide where to go to college. And he's thinking he wants to go, what is it, to Texas or Tennessee, something Tennessee. like that. Tennessee, yeah. I think. And, and George, of course, grew up in, in New Jersey. And mom was just like, oh, no, <laughs> that's too far away. I won't be able to come protect you if you're in trouble. Um, I felt that so much. Yeah, yeah. And um, that that just touched me intensely, deeply. Um, when the mom is going through, uh, and this is a spoiler alert, so, you know, be aware, um, you know, being in the hospital and um, they're, you know, they're afraid they're going to lose her. And and just that that whole scene there, the intensity of that scene. And um, I don't know, it just it was just so. It was just so emotional and and everybody should have a mom like this, you know, and or a mother figure of some variety like this, that it's just so intense. So, um, so I, I thought the mom was wonderful and solid and strong and a provider and, you know, not always physically present because mom was at work a lot, but mom was there for everything that was important in George's life. I felt. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so clear. Uh, George doesn't come out until, what do we say? T- to his mom, I think, I think. in his 20, mm-hmm. uh, early 20s somewhere. But it's fairly clear throughout the book that mom knows. Mm-hmm. Mom has always known. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mom is not going to make it a thing, you know, mm-hmm. that, which which is just such a great way to parent. And then, but still just let let your child come to their own realizations when they're ready. And exactly. I loved the moment when she asked him which name he preferred to have. Because, oh, that was so great. Yeah, he had always thought that his name was Matthew, but it was actually his middle name. And then uh, when his cousin reveals that his first name is actually George, and he used it in school, and the teacher called his mom, um, called their mom, their mom said, so which name do you prefer? Because you should choose one and stick with that one. And they chose Matthew. And it wasn't until high school when their Catholic school required it to be George that Mm -hmm. they became George. But I I loved that the mom gave him that agency in that moment, even though he was fairly young. Mm -hmm. And and as a parent whose children have changed names multiple times, I loved that that was explored. And and even though George is... uh, um, non-binary i think uh-huh you said yeah uh, with the they them pronouns it was not explored in the sense of changing that identity for that reason but just kids finding their identity and what they want to be called which you know we had that we all had that conversation in middle school i don't know about you guys but it's not that we said you should call us this other name, but we always had names in our back pocket. Mm-hmm. Oh, if I should have been named Hillary, you know, I think that was the one that I always loved uh, back when it didn't have so many connotations to it. Oh, I, I didn't know that many Hillary's. I think there was one in a TV show that I liked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always wanted to be a different name also. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that that 
could take us to our discussion of themes because yeah. that was one of the themes we were thinking about is the importance of names and um, also how big a portion of your identity your name is. And for George, as we said, uh, they were called Matthew for about the first uh, 13 years of their mm-hmm. life. And um, they also made it clear that you don't have to be confined to a particular identity. Um, whether or not uh, you choose your name, uh, but bringing up the example of football and double Dutch, yeah. uh, they they mentioned that they were good at football. Their cousins had taught them how to play, but they wanted to spend recess playing double Dutch with the girls and how that was seen as a problem by a bunch of the boys and they were calling um, them bad names because they were doing it. So, um, you know, it's, it's that binary that they object to, like they, mm-hmm. they liked doing both of them at various points, but mm-hmm. had, uh, being forced to do what other people consider is normal did not feel good to them. Yeah. But with uh, the names, I think, we also get, we go from Matthew, Matthew to George to MJ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's great to sort of acknowledge that there are different names, maybe for different parts of your life or phases that you're, you know, going through. Uh, people, other people give you, I always loved the idea of nicknames and I never had a really good one. Uh, my, my name did not lend itself to a lot of nicknames. My my mom had one that only my mom ever used, which I loved. But um, so that was nice. But uh, also to speak to that binaryness, that I loved that chapter. Uh, one of one of the themes that I really saw throughout in a lot of different ways was agency, mm-hmm. and with the double Dutch, that chapter in particular had these sort of isolated little sentences that was like I chose this I chose double dutch until you get to the football where it's more forced um it chose him it chose them because they realized then how their own choices were affecting people around them Uh, I think there's a friend who was trying to be a good friend and but was getting some push back from the other uh, guys playing football and, you know, kind of didn't know how to do it. And I really felt for this, this kid, you know, trying to explain to your friend that you're being harassed because they're gay or perceived effeminate. Um, so it was chosen kind of, for them to play football. Mm-hmm. So it very much spoke to me about the agency. The agency is I choose this, I choose this, this I I couldn't choose. Yes. It was chosen for me. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree, Dorothy. I, they mentioned several times the importance of teaching kids agency to make decisions in their best interest. And I think one thing that goes along with that is the importance of knowledge they mentioned that knowledge is your best weapon and mm-hmm. um, it, whether it's knowledge of history, they talked about, um, you know, how history is taught in school um, and responding to the teacher's comments about slavery, whether it's knowledge about sex, because they mentioned how little they knew about gay mm-hmm. sex, mm-hmm. Um, but having the knowledge helps you to make decisions that are in your best interest and to have the agency. And I think the whole manifesto portion of the book, which are these little directives, you know, at the end of some of the different chapters is like, here's how you reader can take agency for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find that page on the notes because I wrote a couple of them down. So stand up for yourself. Do yeah. what's right. Learn what you agency. like and don't like. Create the sexual environment that works best for you. No one has the right to deny us the resources we need to properly engage with one another. 
you know, stuff like that. That's just, it's very direct spoken to the reader. Here's how you can have some agency. Yeah. And there's and, a and lot on, of good ones. You know, it's kind of a follow up to that. I mean, I think another really important theme, you know, along those lines is how necessary it is to process our trauma. Um, and, you know, George talks about how um, writing, the process of writing down these stories that became All Boys Aren't Blue was um, part of processing their trauma um, of what they went through in their life. But <clears throat> uh, George, George is quoted as saying, it's necessary that we do the work to unpack our shit. It's time for the world to let queer black boys unpack their shit. It's important to do therapy and to discuss mental health too. And George talks very openly um, and frankly about the fact that in the black uh, culture, mental health is not talked about much, um, particularly with um, black males. It's, you know, your mental health is just, you know, this happened. Okay. I'm done with it. And then, you know, there's a lot that never gets talked about. It never gets unpacked. It never gets processed. And that leads to, you know, kind of some, some cultural trauma that becomes generational trauma. And we talked a little bit about that. Um, when we discussed mouse, I, I remember, but, but that, which is not, um, unpacked and processed, and worked through is is going to continue to come back into our lives and haunt us. And and I think we're living in a time right now where, um, you know, because of COVID and all of the trauma caused by COVID, I mean, there's, there's just so much more uh, anxiety and depression and trauma that people may or may not even be aware they have, um, but they're living with it. And you know, there's, there's always been this stigma about mental health. You know, why is mental health even considered separate from medical physical health? health? It's, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's not like your head is not attached to the rest of your body. Um, you know, so, <laughs> or your teeth for that matter. Right. It's, or your eyes. Thing. Right. I mean, all of these things, it's just <laughs> your crazy. overall health and hello health and health insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Listen up. Um, I'm on my soapbox right now. But but seriously, I mean, you know, mental health is everything. If you are not mentally healthy, it affects your sleep. It affects your, your, you know, the health of your heart. It affects your blood pressure. It affects, it affects everything. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, um, and then obviously to add on societal pressures and, and all of the obvious of, you know, um, the gay community is, uh, the LGBTQ plus community is, is constantly under attack. Um, Mm -hmm. people are not allowed to be themselves. If, if they are themselves, then, you know, they deal with bullying or they deal with, or worse, you know, um, attacks. It's, Mm -hmm. we had another Mm -hmm. recent attack in a, in a nightclub, uh, you know, targeting drag Queens just recently. So, so these, these are things that need to be, um, to be brought out and, you know, um, I, I think that's a, a very important theme that comes out of this book is to reach out to your community, get your mental health, get yourself, um, you know, un- unpack your shit and, and deal with it. <laughs> yeah. And I think something that goes along with that is they mentioned earlier um, that this mask that they feel like they're wearing and they refer explicitly to Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, We Wear the Mask, um, as you know, either as a black person or as a queer person, um, there's a lot of hiding who you truly are. And they did not feel comfortable uh, until college to start coming out to a few people. And even then they weren't completely out. And um, just how that fear affected so many aspects of their life and contributed to other trauma. Um, it, it, it is a, th- a thing that a lot of people deal with and maybe most people have to wear or feel like they have to wear a mask in certain aspects of their lives, but they clearly show how big a problem that is to um, hide who you actually are. 
Yeah, I, I have two points I want to make. One about the processing trauma, and maybe you guys can help remind me, but I think there was a section where they talked about trauma happening not just to you, but to the to others around you mm-hmm. when it happened. Like if, uh, I don't think this was the incident, but for instance, when... Um, Matthew's teeth were knocked out. Yeah, uh, that trauma was Matthew's, but as a mom, I can certainly think, you know, that that mom experienced that trauma as well, you know, in a different way. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe it was maybe I'm bringing in something that I heard elsewhere. I can't remember. But so that is an interesting point. And then um, on the mask, I'm curious how you guys feel about the whole. Um, uh, fraternity situation mm. Mm. because I was so again conflicted much like in the part with his with their dad that it was all about finding this this masculine identity that they could live into but then you know which rubbed me the wrong way but it was such an important a bonding experience to them and those mm-hmm. ended up being despite the fact that the fraternity was saying we don't we don't allow gayness four of the eight members in their uh line that's how they referred to it mm-hmm. um were gay uh-huh uh so i don't know that was just a lot for me to unpack this sort of weirdly finding yourself in something that uh, purports to not accept who you are. Yeah. No, the same thing struck me, Dorothy. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that they were explicitly asked, are you gay? And told like, you cannot be gay and in this fraternity. And so they had to hide who they were. But as you said, it turns out that half of their best friends were gay and they came out to each other secretly um, and they are incredibly close. It seems like if you are in an environment that does not tolerate who you are, um, but you're in this environment that also um, creates closeness by these activities you're doing together, that maybe by getting close to each other in other ways, you can then slowly, once you feel comfortable, reveal who you actually are. Yeah, I, I think it really speaks to the complexity of uh, literally everything in the world. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, the underlying principles of what the fraternities are trying to do are really fantastic when taken with a, an understanding of a whole human being. And then there's layers of societal pressure on top of that to try to push away certain identities. But those rituals, those bonding things are still positive. Yes. I don't know. I always shied away from the idea of sororities and fraternities and Same. hazing. Same. Just, and, and I loved that, that they talked about the problems with hazing. Yes. You know, I, and we're on the lookout for that. I agree. And I would hope, had they been asked to do anything, um, you know, uh, that that they thought was dangerous, that they would have stood up and said no. Although at one point, they did say, we would have done anything. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which it also is a, a big question mark. Because I, I agree with both of you that I found that that part of the story raised a lot of questions for me. Um, <clears throat> I, I also never wanted to be a part of something like that. However, um, I'm trying to play devil's advocate a little bit and to be inside George's head, which is impossible to be, but to understand that the George wasn't one thing or isn't one thing, you know, we're all, Mm -hmm. as as Mm -hmm. you both have said, you know, complexities (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. and George was black is black. George is black. Um, (laughs) spoiler alert. (laughs) No, just kidding. Uh, (laughs) George is black and 
and being drawn to join a traditionally black fraternity must have been fulfilling for a part of of George's identity and maybe that was was the appeal that mm-hmm. that that we've talked about you know being a queer black boy is a double edged sword because you're first seen as black and secondarily you're seen as as gay and and to be able to to be with a group that didn't necessarily first say oh you're black because we're all black um i don't know there 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 must be something that's appealing there that you're completely accepted for being black um outside and of your I th- family I think- yeah, I think part of that um, is a really good point, Marion. I think part of that is he had no close male friends other than his cousins right. uh, when he was growing up. And so for the first time, you know, this environment helps you become really close to other black men. And he really yearned for friendship and um, belonging. And so this gives him that. Yeah, definitely. And because you're, you're right, I mean... They talk about in school, their closest friends were the women, the women, the girls they they did double Dutch with. They were they were my girls um, mm. and got in trouble for coming up with the term honey bun. Oh, honey child. Honey, honey child. child. There you honey go. Child. Yeah. Well, should we move on to our last segment on significance? Yes. Yes. Okay. So one way we like to get into the text is think about a book, song, or TV show that we would recommend to the main character or author. And I was thinking that I would recommend um, two books. George Johnson mentioned that they did not have a lot of um, books or TV shows or movies when they were growing up that featured queer um, and or black uh, characters. And um, I chose two books that feature queer uh, teens of color that I think uh, George would have loved reading if they had been around when he was growing up or when they were growing up. So the first one is the book I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas, which is about uh, a trans boy who um, is gay and uh, is Latino and um, trying to figure out so many things about their identity and how they fit in with their culture and um, it's just so beautifully written and presented. And another book that I loved is Felix Ever After by Kaysen Callender. And it's also about a trans teen of color who is trying to figure out um, their identity. And in both cases, they struggle to some extent uh, with their father's understanding who they are. Um, and coming to terms with their queerness. And um, in Felix Ever After, uh, the main character, Felix, is um, humiliated publicly by someone posting their dead name alongside of uh, images of him before he transitioned uh, and, yeah. um, and trying to figure out who did that and why. Um, helps them explore, try to figure out who they are even better. Like, is trans the right term for who I am? Mm -hmm. Um, Which pronouns? um, Am I gay? You know, all all these questions come up Mm -hmm. in that book. So Mm -hmm. they're both beautifully written books, um, and they both deal with topics that I think uh, George would have really appreciated when he was growing up. Excellent. And it leads right into the passage, which is another way we get into the text that spoke to me. Um, And 
I, you know, I've underlined half the book, so I had a lot to choose from. <laughs> but I had a big post-it note and asterisks on this one. Um, I remember the arguments people have about whether you are born queer or grow into it. I think the funniest part about that argument is that it doesn't matter if queerness is by birth or by choice. It is who you are, and no one should have the right to change that. And I just loved how, because it is a, such a big part of the conversation, uh, and for me, helps me, it, the idea that it's not a choice helps me to understand transness and gayness. But I loved being challenged with that. It doesn't matter if it's a choice. It's still your choice. Right? So exactly. that that really uh, spoke to me a lot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really important passage. Thank you for bringing that one up. Um, that kind of leads me into the question. Um, and, and I will say this because I'm going to, I'm going to plug this. When I read, when I picked up the book, All Boys Aren't Blue <clears throat> and started reading it, I also, and I do this sometimes, I, I also looked for the book as an audiobook and mm-hmm. was also able to sim- simultaneously check out the audiobook. And it was great because <clears throat> I could ride, uh, read during my commutes, many commutes. Mm -hmm. Um, but what was particularly special about this audiobook is that it is narrated by George and Mm -hmm. it gave me a deeper connection, I think, to this, the whole, the whole story, because to hear George, um, talk, you know, literally read the story it felt like a conversation. It felt like I was just sitting there in my living room having a conversation with George about all these stories and and experiences that they had had in thus far in their life, and how those those stories had molded them. So I found it a very a very powerful way to experience the book. So um, if you haven't had an opportunity to do that, or if you're thinking about um, reading this book, I, I definitely recommend, um, considering the audiobook. Um, and all that being said, <clears throat> as I was reading this book, um, and, and the interviews and, and things that we've talked about with George, it, it made me really, um, wonder what George would say about genderqueer, um, and what kinds of conversations George might have with Maya Kobabe. Um, and gender queer being uh, a book that we've already discussed in a pod in a prior podcast. Um, what I found particularly interesting here is that both both gender queer and all boys aren't blue are memoirs. They're listed as memoirs. Um, <clears throat> they're both coming of age stories, um, or coming of age books. I guess a memoir is not a story, but. Um, but when I went to my public library to check out these books, Genderqueer is in the graphic novel section in my particular public library in the general collection, as in the adult collection, not in the YA collection. And All Boys Aren't Blue is located in the YA collection. <clears throat> and I found that somewhat curious. Um, so I kind of wanted to, to put the question out there to George and to, um, my fellow rogue librarians and, and our audience, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And, um, you know, why, why is that? I mean, certainly one easy answer is that, um, it seems like all boys aren't blue was specifically written for a YA audience and gender queer perhaps was not. Um, but I'm going to ask, um, you two, what you think of this? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Marian. I, I think it's, it's clear that all boys aren't blue was written for teenagers. It seems to be his or young adults his primary audience. Gender queer 
I would say um, was also like maybe written with teenagers in mind, but um, given the pushback that it's had across the country, I wonder if your library system made the choice not to put it in the young adult section because that could lead to more problems. And so if it's in the general collection, um, it's not, you know, be, as we talked about, the, the fact that it's a graphic right. memoir um, makes it more problematic for some people. Right. Um, and even though the content in this uh, book is arguably more sexually explicit, especially when he talks about the assault and losing mm -hmm. um, their virginity, um, the elements, the sexual elements in genderqueer, seeing them drawn, seeing them illustrated, um, bothered people <laughs> more, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but I, I could see this book, All Boys Aren't Blue, being moved to the general collection I could if too. it caused problems too. Yeah, especially because, to, you know, <clears throat> as Dorothy mentioned, you know, it, it goes into the college years and those are the years of, you know, more sexual exploration. Um, well, I, I do think most definitions of YA now really do, you know, it include the college years because they're quite literally young adults, mm -hmm. you know, at that point. Yeah, so that's a good question. I also wonder whether uh, the classifications come with the books. In many cases, the publisher will say, this is YA, this is, you know, a graphic novel. So that might have something to do with it. I also think, even though both of them are uh, non-binary, non George's book doesn't it doesn't mention it. It doesn't mention it as much. It the focus is more on on being gay uh, and, mm -hmm. and black, and I I just wonder in the back of my mind, is that more acceptable to the general uh, banning audience because it's less like. Um, telling Not, your children how to be trans. Sure. Hmm. It like maybe non-binaryness or transness is more dangerous. Right. Mm -hmm. To mm -hmm. certain people. Yeah. Well, and I I feel like in in All Boys Aren't Blue, you know, the way that the story is told is through family stories and family experiences a little bit more um very personal. Well, no, because Maya Kobabe's book is also extremely personal, but it's. I think Maya's book focuses less on the familial relationships. Right. They're there, more but on... it's more about their figuring out. Um, well, now I should <laughs> use uh, Maya's correct pronouns. Um, sorry. Uh, it's more about M figuring out who um, he is and mm -hmm. this book is exploring who George is, but it's, it feels much bigger than that in terms of these relationships right. are, seem central. Right. Right. Truly. It's, it's almost a conversation I want to have with the librarians and just ask because yeah. it's, it's perplexing to me, but um, and I, I wonder if it had to do with a challenge that came to um, to one or the other. Uh, I'm guessing gender queer because that was in the news so much more um, in 2021 with with it being the most banned book of the year. So, mm -hmm. and um, this was the third most banned, but still, right. there's a difference. <laughs> there is, there is a difference. All right. Well, uh, thank you to our listeners um, as always um, for for being our listeners and, and being um, committed to our, our podcast. We really appreciate you. 
In the next episode, we will discuss The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Please join us next time for a discussion of why it has been banned. As always, if you would like to leave us a question or comment, um, if you'd like to join in my question (laughs) that we just sort of left unresolved, please visit theroguelibrarians.com or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Pod. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you to Chris, yay, yay. for creating the music, <laughs> and to Lizzie, yay, Woo-hoo. for doing so much for us, um, particularly the audio editing for this episode, our first attempt at doing this remotely. Um, and for all the previous episodes, we could not have done this podcast without either of them. And thank you to our listeners. Um, this is for you. We dedicate this to you um, because books, books are, are, meant, meant are meant to be read. Be read. Bye. Bye. Bye.